0: this is reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd hello
3: hello i believe congratulations are in order You, you have a new job oh well thank you very much and you've been very nicely congratulating me during the course of the week as well
4: I I got a congratulatory text message from my friend. It said, uh, congratulations on becoming the new shadow business secretary-in-law. That's a good way of describing you. I might change my Twitter bio to exactly that. Do you want to post? Are are you offering? No. Uh, I thought the the Jeffocracy could be just inching, inching closer.
3: I'm looking forward to getting stuck in lots of big issues around business and the support they're getting during the crisis. And obviously um climate and the climate transition so it's a it's an you know it's an area that i feel really really passionate about
4: and uh, you'll bring aspects of your new job to the podcast
3: yeah i mean i think it's gonna be really good to explore some of the issues that um that are relevant to my job in the podcast and uh you know I, you know hopefully do it in a kind of open way about some of the challenges some of the issues that that we've got to that we've got to confront as a country
4: I'd love to explore some of the issues that are relevant to my job in the podcast, but um, I just need a job, really. (laughs) Oh, I've I've been doing a bit this week. You've been very busy.
3: You've been very busy
4: this week. I've had a funny old week because I've been covering in the evenings on BBC Radio 5 Live and on Monday evening, so a week ago by the time you hear this, I was sat eating a sandwich, waiting to interview some podcasters about music, and then my phone started ringing. I was the person closest to a microphone. I had to interrupt a sports programme and then go on and do a two-hour rolling news coverage of the Prime Minister being moved into intensive care. And I said to somebody, what I felt like was, you know, in a film where a plane is going down, the the pilot is out of commission, and they have to get a passenger into the cockpit and explain exactly how to do it from the control tower. You were the passenger. I was the passenger in that you're, scenario. You're an
3: experienced broadcaster. I
4: am, but I've never quite done anything like that before. And I'll tell you what, you know, you people will know uh, Chris Mason from the news and from the yeah. Brexit cast and Nick Erdley, BBC political correspondent. Uh, they've got a virologist and scientist called Dr. Chris Smith. And these people, it's just amazing watch them and actually the production crew more than anything the, the the way they're able to spring into action and change gear and just go on air and keep you informed and be able to do stuff with very little information it was just quite something to behold
3: well and i'm glad to say the prime minister is out of intensive care yeah and indeed the bbc has provided great public service during this crisis yeah, they
4: are they've been amazing so, shall we talk about what we're going to talk about this week?
3: This week, we're talking about the argument for a green stimulus in response to coronavirus. Uh, obviously, we're seeing massive economic downturns uh, in in economies across the world, um, and our guests argue that as we turn to the recovery from coronavirus. Investment in green projects can both help stimulate the economy and drive the transition to net zero carbon emissions. We'll be talking to economist Michael Jacobs about how to ensure the coronavirus recovery contributes to our long-term goals, to Hannah Martin from Green New Deal UK about how the climate movement is adapting to the current crisis and what they're demanding, and to Nick Robbins from the LSE Grantham Institute about lessons from the 2008 financial crisis where investment in green measures was limited. What's your
4: reason to be cheerful this week?
3: My reason to be cheerful, believe it or not, is the Doncaster Council Twitter feed. Go on. Honestly, Jeff, I mean, I'm so proud of the Doncaster Council Twitter feed. So basically, the Doncaster Council Twitter feed has the talent of a man called Liam Smith. Now, he, he, or rather the Twitter feed, became famous... Um, about two or three years ago, because of the names they would give to gritters, does this ring any bells with you? Yes, it does. Yes. um Anyway, they have surpassed themselves, or rather, Liam has surpassed himself. He's got eighty-two thousand likes and forty-six thousand retweets. Something even your draw that was stuck didn't get <laughs> for a thread, which I, and I'll I'll read the thread to you, but it'll take a bit of time. And basically it goes like this. In November 1970, officials in Oregon, USA, decided to blow up a rotting whale carcass. The whole thing went horribly wrong. Why do we bring this up? Well this story can teach us three things about coronavirus. The story begins when a forty-five-foot sperm whale washed up on the beach in Florence, Oregon, on 9th of November 1970. There was some debate amongst locals on what to do with it. Although unpleasant, they could leave it to decompose, that was option one. Option two, they could try and chop it up and bury it, again not pleasant. Option three, they could blow it up with dynamite and hope that seagulls ate all the small chunks. It was decided that leaving the whale to decompose would be too unpleasant. No one wants the smell of rotting sperm whale when they're eating their Christmas dinner. Fortunately, at least for the purpose of this history lesson, they chose option three. They would blow up the whale. George Thornton, who sensibly seems to be wearing a hard hat, was the engineer in charge of the explosion. By his own admission, he wasn't sure how much dynamite would be needed to completely obliterate one of the world's largest mammals, so he opted for half a tonne. An ex-member of the military advised George and other officials this was way too much and just a few sticks of dynamite would be enough. They ignored his advice. On 12th of November, in front of a crowd of excited spectators, yes, really, they exploded the whale... Very quickly, the short-sightedness of the plan became evident. The huge amount of dynamite sent massive chunks of blubber flying through the chilly air, and it rained down on terrified onlookers. The overwhelming smell sent people running for their homes as rotting well plopped down around them. (laughs) The situation was dangerous. A car was even crushed by a huge lump of blubber a quarter of a mile away. To cap everything off, the main bit of the whale stayed exactly where it had been. The problem hadn't gone away, only now there are thousands of bits of problems spread for miles around and then it ends the twitter thread so why do we tell you this story well as far as we can see there are three coronavirus lessons here don't ignore the advice that experts give you they know what they're talking about sometimes it's better secondly sometimes it's better to just sit at home and do nothing than go outside and do something ridiculous
4: <laughs>
3: three when you ignore expert advice and act like an idiot you cover everyone else with decaying whale blubber hashtag stay home that's fantastic that's fantastic so it was. It's really good. Anyway, Liam is brilliant, um, and James O'Brien said he wanted to know who ran the account. But he's a genius. People have said this is the best local government Twitter thread in history. Um, I think the people in Oregon, in that place, in the o- city of Florence, Oregon, have have um, tweeted about it. We can all learn from the past. So there you go. It shows, you know, Twitter can be a force for good. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff?
4: Um, mine is something that it will have gone out on the radio by the time you hear this. It's it's going out on Sunday night, but I'm assured you'll be able to listen to it again. And it's a tribute to um, my erstwhile radio partner, Pete Mitchell, for years on local radio in Manchester in the 90s, and then on Virgin Radio um, in, in the early part of the noughties, in the middle middle of the noughties. Uh, we were a double act called Pete and Jeff, and Pete very sadly died last month. He went out for his walk. Uh, for his walk, and uh, he, he just died suddenly and unexpectedly, and it's been awful. But the the new Virgin Radio have put together a tribute to him, hosted by Chris Evans. And uh, Pete made a big difference in the music world. He, he championed new bands. He was one of the first people to play Oasis on the radio. So you've, you've got all these people like Elbow and the Charlatans and Badly Drawn Boy, all of whom I'm sure are on your regular playlist, ed um, I've heard I
3: mean,
4: of Badly Drawn Boy and I've heard oh, of Oasis. Well, there you go. Um, they're all paying tribute to Pete. Lots of a Noddy Holder from Slade, uh, all paying tribute to Pete on a on a special radio program, which I guess is available to listen to again on the Virgin Radio website. I,
3: I mean, I know it was a terrible shock for you, and it's really sad that he died. So, um, well, I think it's really nice they're doing that. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To
4: give us an overview of. What a green fiscal stimulus could look like. We're joined by Michael Jacobs, who is professor at the Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute. Uh, Michael, hello. How is lockdown going for you?
1: Well, I've definitely reached the I need a haircut phase of the lockdown. Um, Are you considering doing it yourself? Uh, no, definitely not. Um, I've looked at some people's efforts with their clippers and I'm not going for that. Um, I'm going to ask my daughter to do it in return for um Actually,
4: I'm not sure what it's in return for. On the you could offer say- to cut her hair. I mean, what, 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 yeah, what would you want
1: her dad to cut her hair for oh, her? I don't, think that, I don't think that's a deal she'll go for. On the other hand, Sainsbury's had pasta this morning, so um, there was a bonus. Things are um, looking up.
4: Yeah. And, uh, and to start with a basic question, what, what is a fiscal stimulus?
1: A fiscal stimulus is a, uh, a measure of spending by government um, generally introduced when an economy has gone into recession. So it's a kind of standard uh, economic argument that when an economy goes into recession, so people are made unemployed, businesses go out of, uh, out of business, um, people have less money to spend, then government should make up the spending in the economy by spending itself. And that can be either what we call current spending, which is um, creating jobs, and paying people um, and investment spending, um, for example, on infrastructure, on other things which will last a long time. And essentially what government's doing is trying to fill the gap in spending in the economy as a whole that's been left by uh, the shortfall of spending from households and businesses in a recession.
4: So, So then can you make the case for a specifically green stimulus in response to coronavirus?
1: I think it's important to recognise that right now we're still living in the emergency phase of this terrible crisis um, where governments in this country and around the world are desperately trying to get enough resources uh, to their health services, to the social care sector, um, and uh, trying to support businesses and households that have lost Uh, income. And that is still the phase we're in now. But at some point, when we hope lockdowns can be uh, possibly gradually uh, released and the economy can get back uh, to a more normal functioning, we will find that there is very significant unemployment. Businesses um, have collapsed um, and there is a lack of confidence in the economy. And so it does seem likely that at that moment, governments in the UK and elsewhere we will need to put in stimulus packages, spending, investment packages. Um, and then the question is, what do you spend that money on? And the argument that uh, many people would uh, make is, let's spend it on the things that are going to do general good in the economy. We clearly want money circulating, we want people to be employed and so on. There are lots of ways of doing that in ways that also support our efforts to decarbonize, to move, move towards an environmentally uh, sustainable economy. Remember that this crisis has come on top of the climate and environmental crisis. That has not gone away. And so anything we can do to make stimulus packages greener will help us address both crises at once.
4: And is that something you, you feel there'll an appetite for that across the political se- spectrum? Or do you feel it will be more a cause of the, the
1: left? No, I think uh, I think there is no reason to think why uh, economists, people in government, uh, um, people, um, uh, kind of the public in general, wouldn't support a, a stimulus at least partly um, directed uh, at uh, decarbonisation and environmental measures. After all, the Um, the uh, argument that we must uh, address those crises is now shared across the board. The government has has put into law the net zero target for 2050 for emissions. So there ought to be very strong support for it. And I think the main um, uh, a query that people in government will rightly have is: Can we get money into environmental and decarbonisation decarbonisation schemes quickly? Will those kind of schemes employ the people who've been made unemployed? Will that be all over the country? Um, and will the long term benefits of that be worth the, the spending? And I think uh, we can answer yes to all of those questions in areas like energy efficiency and electric vehicle charging networks. Uh, and so on, uh, nature conservation and so on. So I think there's going to be quite a strong case for this and I can see quite wide support for it.
4: On emissions, uh, now we've seen that they've fallen due to the lockdowns around the world. Do you think the crisis is likely to lead to long-term reductions in emissions in and of itself?
1: Um The short-term reductions are very clear, but they are for a reason that none of us uh, wanted. Um, And they don't suggest in themselves that emissions um, long-term will fall. That will depend on the shape of the economy um, that we come out of this with. There are some reasons to think that now that we've all got used to working from home – People will travel less, so that's not a bad prediction. But we don't know; that's quite possible. Um, it may well be that um, we can find other ways of, of reshoring, as it's as it put, reducing the, the length of supply chains to try and make our economic systems a bit more resilient. That might reduce emissions. But at the same time, of course, we have a very very low oil price, and that might raise emissions. Um, but then there's the counter impact uh, of uh, many oil and gas exploration projects are not worth doing at very low oil prices. So, these are a variety of different kinds of impacts on emissions that are likely to occur as we come out of the crisis. We certainly shouldn't take anything for granted. So, Michael, you've given us a sense of this
3: already, but but say a bit more about where you think the areas are where a, a, a green stimulus would meet the tests that you've, that you've set
1: out and you think government would and should apply. Well, one uh, obvious one is uh, energy efficiency in buildings and homes, where we know we've still got to do a huge amount of work to uh, bring uh, uh, homes and businesses up to, um, up to high energy efficiency standards, which of course has a huge long-term benefit because it saves energy costs. Um, the work that's uh, required for those kinds of schemes can be all over the country, so it can employ people everywhere. It tends not to be particularly high-skilled, so there are likely to be a lot of people available to do that kind of work. And can
3: you, I was going to ask, can you mobilise people quickly for that?
1: Well, so I think this is one of the most interesting questions, which is, um, what's the delivery mechanism for this kind of stimulus scheme, but also things like nature conservation uh, and so on? Are the businesses available to do it, or could you use public agencies how would you actually organise that? We, of course, do have energy efficiency schemes funded by government, um, and so the infrastructure of the businesses will be there if those businesses have survived uh, this this phase of the crisis. So that, I think, will be the key question for government, which is... um, is the delivery mechanism uh, out there. Um, you need for, to for train other lots measures. more
3: people. I mean, <laughs> if
1: you're re- redeploying people, you need to train lots more people, presumably, and at training, speed. Y- yes, at speed. And training of, is, of course, um, in itself a good thing to do. Um, so uh, the, the institutional requirements of doing this, that is, how would you actually organize? It seemed to me to be just as important um, in thinking about over the next few months um, as the... How much money do you need? where would the jobs be and so and so on? do you think there are specific
4: sectors that need bailing out and, and need bailing out in in a green way
1: it's very clear that some sectors have suffered very uh, uh, very very deeply from this um, and some very large companies including airlines automotive uh, car manufacturers and others um, are we know looking to government to bail them out um, Some of this may be inevitable. There's always a problem that it's much easier to bail out big companies uh, than small ones. Um, And the question, I think, is if that happens, what are the conditionalities? Do you just give money uh, to uh, companies uh, to do what they like with? Or do you say uh, there's going to be a contract here? And in return for being bailed out, you have to make sure that you are Uh, doing the right thing. Some of that will be environmental. So airlines, for example, they really ought to be paying fuel tax, which they don't now. They're the only sector that doesn't pay fuel tax. Um, They need to uh, ensure that they are uh, moving towards decarbonisation of the airline sector as rapidly uh, as possible. Um, similarly, cars, um, the car sector, that needs to be um, uh, accelerating its decarbonisation uh, strategies. Um, but there are other conditionalities you might want to place as well. You might want to say you're going to all have to pay proper taxation. Uh, you're not going to pay your chief executives as much. You're going to re- um, uh, give some of your shares to your workers and so on. The, the crucial point being that government shouldn't just bail companies out willy-nilly, as it were that ought to be a contract between the public and the uh, and those companies and the public want other things um uh, out of their uh, companies and this is a chance to uh, to do that indeed i think i would argue that uh, government shouldn't just grant money to companies. If they bail them out, they should take equity stakes, which then gives them some upside. So when those companies return to profitability, the government recoups some of the money and also potentially gives them a stronger steer in directing those companies uh, towards good social and environmental ends. So I think the conditionalities on bailouts will be the most important thing that we need to be asking for. And we were in government during the uh,
3: 2008 uh, financial crisis. I was the climate change secretary. You were the advisor to, to Gordon Brown. What lessons should we learn from what was done here and elsewhere during that crisis
1: as we, as we seek to recover from this one, do you think? Overall, this is a different kind of economic crisis. It's not caused uh, in the financial system. But the economic impacts look as if they will be even larger. Um, uh, the reduction in global GDP and no doubt UK GDP, uh, our national income, um, look as if they're going to be larger. And so the impact on people um, will be, and businesses um, in that sense, will be similar. One of the things we did in the stimulus packages which the UK government and uh, almost all other governments implemented in the two thousand 2008 to 10 period, was uh, to spend part of the fiscal stimulus um, on green measures of various kinds. Um, and some of those um, worked very well. What didn't happen, however, was the accompanying policies, for example, uh, environmental regulations or carbon taxation, which would have sustained those improvements that were made through the fiscal stimulus packages for longer. And so the general analysis that people have made of that period is that, it was good to spend money on those, and an average in, um, uh, across developed countries was around 15 to 16% of the stimulus packages at those periods were green, but that it didn't have a long-lasting impact. So that's one of the things we should uh, uh, look at, I think, as we design them uh, this time around.
4: And, and how do we pay for a green stimulus? Is it through borrowing is it, or is it through printing money?
1: Well, this is a very interesting question, which is, of course, uh, not unique to the green uh, um, elements of any stimulus. Um, governments are already spending, as we know, very, very considerable monies in this phase, the emergency phase, um, largely providing income to households and to businesses that uh, will, is substituting for the, the income that they've lost as a result of the close down of the economy. And that is certainly going to increase government debt a lot, um, uh, possibly to up to about 10% of, of national income, it's estimated. And if we then need further stimulus packages when the economy gets going, as we've been talking about here, that's going to add uh, to, to government uh, debt. So there are three ways you can pay for it. So one is debt um, uh, and asking people in the private sector to pay for that debt, as governments would normally do. A second one is to ask the Bank of England Uh, to take up some of that slack. If the Bank of England does that and then eventually sells the debt back into the market, then in the end, it's the same as the first. So it's a kind of temporary Bank of England paying for it. But in the long run, it would be paid back um, uh, by savers uh, and borrowers as normal. Um, But it's possible that the Bank of England would never pay it back. And if that's the case, then you have something that economists call monetary financing, which is effectively printing money where the Bank of England basically pays for it. And it does that by it's printing money. It's obviously all done electronically now. Um, and many economists are now saying that is inevitably what will have to happen. After all, the quantitative easing, so-called, which was the, the Bank of England buying debt after the financial crisis 10 years ago, has not been paid back and not very many economists envisage it being paid back. So that is a way of paying for this. And as long as there are mechanisms to make sure that that doesn't lead to inflation, then most economists, I think, now would say that is appropriate. And then, of course, the third route is by increasing taxation. And at some point, it does seem likely that taxes will have to rise to pay for at least part of this. And then the question is who pays? And many people would say there are lots of people on higher incomes, particularly those with wealth, which tends to be undertaxed. There are corporate sector, particularly large multinationals, who don't pay very much tax, as we know. There is taxes available on land, which is not very well taxed on financial transactions and so on. So taxes probably will have to rise at some point, but the key question is who pays.
4: And just to finish, Michael, do you think there's anything that the the climate movement can learn about the the response to COVID and the way that governments and people have acted?
1: Well, I'm not sure it's for the climate movement uh, that needs to learn it, but I think governments do and the public does. We weren't ready for this uh, pandemic. We knew that uh, a major pandemic was likely. The WHO, the World Health Organization, other health scientists had told us this, but we didn't pay attention and governments weren't ready. Our National Health Service was not uh, funded to be ready. And uh, that is, I think, a a lesson that we have to learn because uh, what have the scientists been telling us about the climate crisis? They've been telling us that it's going to get worse and that we have to reduce the risk by reducing our emissions, and we have to be uh, ready for it uh, because the climate crisis, as we said, um, is not going away and we have to take more action than we have currently done.
4: Michael Jacobs, thank you very much. I hope the uh, the haircut goes well. It's always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Now, to talk about the
3: movement that has formed around the issue of the Green New Deal and what they're calling for uh, as we emerge from this crisis, I'm delighted to say that we're joined now by Hannah Martin, who is co-executive director of the Green New Deal UK campaign, Hannah. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks so much for having me. So
3: obviously, you know, everyone's lives have been turned upside down by this crisis. How is Green New Deal UK adapting to campaigning and organising during this during this moment? And what what do you think the impact has been on the on the demands of the climate movement more generally?
5: Well, I mean, it's a really difficult time for everyone, isn't it? I think you know, people are being furloughed. There's parenting and caring responsibilities where they once um, weren't, um, you know, people are isolated alone. And, and I think that's obviously going to have an impact on any movement, any organising group. Um, I think organising by its nature is about building relationships and supporting people to be empowered. I think through the kind of emergence of the incredible mutual aid networks uh, that have kind of sprung up all over the UK in this time, I think... You know, we can see that people want to be connected. They want to um, support one another. Um, They want to work together at a community level. And I think for us as organisers, um, more widely, there's something really inspiring to be learnt from that. Um, I think that, you know, we were always doing a lot of video calls because we work with people across the UK. And I think, you know, the school strikers are an incredible example of organising remotely and still managing to do incredible work you know obviously there's a a difference being able to not gather in public but i think there is a an an appetite for people to learn more about the current situation we're in to engage with maybe some of the kind of intellectual arguments around the green new deal and kind of understand why we're in this position where our resilience as an economy is so low so i think the green new deal you know we need to be thinking about what we're demanding next um, from the recovery as a movement Um, and that means that you know we, we definitely haven't slowed down because actually there's everything to lose and there's everything to win in what comes after this crisis
3: so tell us what what is green new deal uk calling for in response to the crisis what's what's the key demands
5: So I think for us, it's about ensuring that we don't just go back to the status quo. Uh, You know, the status quo has basically been failing. You know, we've had a decade of austerity. It's hollowed out public services um, and left people bereft. Um, And we continue to wreak havoc on our natural systems that support us. So for us, you know, we need an economic recovery plan that is justice-focused, that is green, and it needs to be about building a fairer, better economy. So that means basically, I mean, three things. It means meeting the needs of everybody right now, you know, basic needs, food, shelter, guaranteeing an income, housing um, for everyone, respective of employment or nationality. It means funding, you know, that public and social infrastructure, which we now see clearly for what it is which is basically our immune system you know the social care system the nhs uh from nurses to the people who stack shelves those people need to be supported to live well and basically we need to totally transform our economy so i think that ultimately it's about building something that is more resilient to these kinds of shocks whether they be a pandemic or the climate related crises we might well see in the next decade we have to build back better and do something different And if you were
3: making the case to somebody who didn't necessarily know about the Green New Deal but was just much more focused on the, you know, sort of incredibly disruptive effects of the crisis and just felt, you know, the thing they wanted most of all was to get back to the way things were, what's the case you would make to them?
5: I think that the way things were actually for the majority of people wasn't good enough. Um, You know, I think that we have kind of convinced ourselves that it's not possible to live in a world free from poverty, where we don't see hundreds of people on the streets, um, to live in a world that's free from climate breakdown, where everybody has fulfilled and healthy lives. You know, we could decarbonise our economy, we could tackle climate change, um, you know, we could invest in proper housing, make sure that people have access to green spaces, have a really functioning, high quality, free public transport system. These are all things that are possible and I think that we have to both recognise where people are at in terms of the insecurity and isolation and fear that people are feeling right now and speak to that by calling for people's basic needs to be met and for there to be proper investment in a health system, whilst also saying, you know, if, if your house fell down, you might want to rebuild it and rebuild the bits of it that you love, but you wouldn't necessarily rebuild it so that there was still, like, drafty windows and a leaky roof. You know, you'd want to do something different and you'd want to make sure that the bits in society that are being so laid bare by this crisis you know inequality and that and and job insecurity you'd want to fix that and so i think that people the public conversation has shifted dramatically in the last few weeks months so that there is space to have that conversation i think
4: something you've written about is the reaction to falling carbon emissions during the crisis um Why is it misplaced for people to see falling emissions in the short term as a good thing?
5: Yeah, I think it's a really quite dangerous narrative, actually. Um, You know, the drop in economic activity has caused, you know, a drop in pollution and emissions. But I think that we basically, when we say things like, oh, that means that humans are the virus or that sort of narrative, we're basically placing the... That the blame for those that pollution and emissions at the feet of kind of all humanity, when in fact it's a very, very much a result of a kind of designed extractive economic system um, that causes that profound damage, uh, and disproportionately, you know, evidence suggests it's it's the activities of the richest in society and a small number of corporations that kind of keep that system going. And at the same time, you know, some of the poorest people globally, the you know communities in the global south, have done the least to, you know, make this crisis happen, have contributed the least, and will be paying the most. And it's kind of the same here in the UK. You know, some of the poorest in society, flood-impacted flood communities, communities hit highest by air pollution, tend to be some of the most marginalised and impoverished in our country. And so, I think that. We have to be really careful that any, you know, any kind of narrative that we're, when we're talking about climate change in this crisis, we're really talking about how we can ensure the flourishing of people. How can we make sure their basic needs are met while staying within our planetary boundaries? And that is something that is possible. It's something that we can do. It's something that we should be doing. And that's what we kind of need to be talking about.
4: How off the back of this, then, do we go about putting pressure on a conservative government specifically to implement a green recovery? I mean, do you think the, the Green New Deal is it's, it's a helpful way to frame it? It's something that's very associated, I suppose, with the Democratic candidates in the American presidential race.
5: Well, I think that no matter, you know, what government you have, a Green New Deal won't just happen. You know, we have seen... I mean, I do think that the the playing field has shifted massively in the last few weeks. You know, we've seen a Conservative government do unprecedented levels of economic intervention. Um, Like, that would have been unimaginable just weeks ago. So things are shifting rapidly. However, I don't think this government will implement the kind of wide justice-focused Green New Deal that we need unless we hold their feet to the fire. You know, we have to build a kind of broad-based movement that is calling for a new social settlement where we put people and planet first um, and we have to do the work to make that happen. We have to work across society. We have to work across different organisations. We need to kind of put aside our differences and, and, and push together because now is the time to be demanding something big and visionary. You know, we need something that stretches across generations and locations and communities. I think, you know, people can see that the NHS and the social care system are our kind of immune system. Like, people can see what we are currently living under. It's kind of laid bare at the moment. And I think that, you know, politicians can be moved by movements. That's what they're there to do. And so I don't think it will happen if we just all sit back, but I think it could happen if we all step forward.
3: Now, obviously, this was going to be the big year for climate in in the sense of COP26 was going to be happening in in November in Glasgow. COP26, for those who don't remember, is the updating of the Paris commitments. Very, very important to get the world much closer to the one and a half degrees that Paris committed to, but the individual pledges from countries were a long way short of that. Tell us how you and the Green New Deal UK sort of view the context now running up to that important summit and the wider question of climate action. Obviously, the summit will now take place at a later date but just tell us how you think it changes all that because that's obviously a really important global global decision that the world is going to make.
5: Yeah I mean it's a it's a huge shift to everybody's plans and um, I think I suppose in terms of how we keep up momentum on climate action like one of the challenges I think within the movement is to not just conceive of climate action as a kind of singular issue and i think that that is where climate has traditionally suffered because it's kind of siphoned itself off as if it's not connected to the way in which we run our economy the way in which you know everything else um and i think that many of the solutions to climate breakdown will help ameliorate the problems and issues caused by crises of inequality, housing, job insecurity, COVID nineteen. And so I think it's it's an opening to have conversations both within our communities, within the people we work with, the people we organise, about the ways in which our economy and our solutions to climate change are linked. And so for me it's it actually seems to be a, a moment for the climate movement to speak to government across multiple issues so in the run-up to the next COP you know as governments are trying to find ways for their economies to survive the recessions that are coming you know like we can be having conversations with them that are much broader I think and so in that way I think yes it's a delay but we do have openings to have conversations with other governments that are broader than maybe maybe there were before.
3: Well look Hannah Martin I certainly feel more cheerful uh, talking to you (laughs) Thanks so much for joining
5: us. Thank you so much for having me.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com.
4: We're going to speak now to Nick Robbins, who is a professor in practice of sustainable finance at LSE Grantham Institute, which is a centre for climate policy research. Nick, I just want to start by saying one of the very enjoyable things about these Zoom conferences for me is getting to see inside other people's houses. And I'm really curious to know, what is that poster just behind your right shoulder?
2: Uh, The poster is uh, is a campaign poster to stop a dam on the Danube the Nazimoros dam, which was, uh, is on the border between Austria and Hungary. And uh, it has a picture of Dracula, in fact. Um, and uh, the two teeth are, are supposed to be the, where the dam was going to. Uh, the,
3: um, it looks the it, that that poster looks great on the podcast, doesn't it, Jeff? It, it does, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, we should, we should really visualise
4: it. It's, it's got a real B movie quality to it. Uh, Nick, you've um, you've evaluated the extent of the green stimulus around the world following the two thousand and eight financial crisis. Um, What's what's as an overview? What's your assessment of how the world responded back then?
2: Yeah, at the time, um, I was actually working for HSBC, the the bank, and we started picking up signals in 2008. Uh, the governments were starting to to think about allocating some of the money they're pumping into the economy to boost the green economy, and that was mostly actually coming from uh, East Asia. In fact, from China, from South Korea, and 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 so on. Uh, And it really took a a step forwards when President Obama came into office and and he came into office with a sort of ready-made sort of green stimulus as part of what became the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. So we started actually just sort of counting and analysing and looking through the various stimulus plans, and there were many of these, and governments often had, had, had one, two, three different stimulus plans. And overall, um, our estimate suggested it was about 16%, or about $500 billion worldwide, that was allocated to a variety of different um, sort of green uh, initiatives, whether that's sort of making houses more energy efficient, boosting renewable energy, uh, improving public transport, and so on. And that was so that's the overall estimate about sort of 15, 16% of the total.
4: And w- which countries did best?
2: Well, the countries that put the most into it were, um, as I say, China, uh, South Korea, um, and, and also the US. Europe was relatively small, but that's largely because Europe has a sort of welfare state and so has what economists call automatic fiscal stabilizers so actually that um money uh, when people when you have unemployment and so on the, the government responds pretty much automatically which isn't the case necessarily in the u.s and other countries um so yeah it was, it was mostly um china um, south korea and the u.s uh, have the largest yeah what should we learn nick
3: from the kind of gold standard examples like south korea from what they did in the in the financial crisis
2: well, I think actually probably the, the US is probably one to, to, to really, really learn, learn from. I mean, actually, um, there was a, a report which President Obama um, uh, released actually in February 2016, so a bit after the crisis. And it was really the biggest stimulus, really biggest boost for clean energy in the US ever that this, this, um, recovery act had, had been introduced. Uh, not only just sort of public money going in, particularly for renewables, but also because that, that gave confidence to investors that here was the sort of direction for the economy, private money came in as well to, to get that sort of crowding in effect that people, people, people loved. What are the barriers
3: to? green stimulus? I mean, the barriers, do you think, in the minds of governments as they think about how they should, you know, kind of restart, revive the economy from such a deep recession?
2: I mean, stimulus is supposed to be, um, as as the economists call it, so targeted timely and temporary. Um, and so I suppose you're going to want to find things which actually have a high economic and social impact, particularly if you're, if you're trying to tackle um, uh, unemployment and so on, is going to put money into people's pockets fast. And is also, I think, going to help drive the sort of next phase of economic development.
3: I'm very interested in this targeted timely and temporary, because if you think about the green measures, targeted, yes, timely, yes, I'm sort of I'm pausing on the temporary question because if you take, for example, what we need to do to house, you know, household insulation, just for, as, a, as a sort of an, for instance, and I know we did some of this in 2008. Yeah, you know, that isn't necessarily temporary. I mean, that is, we've got a massive transformation of our housing stock that's got to take place. I'm wondering whether there's another T like transition or something transformational, oh, sort of postcard. transformational transformational that's the one you're on well,
2: i think i think you're right to pause on that one um ed i mean and, and one of the the problems actually with the with the green stimulus um, of the, the uh, financial crisis, was actually, was often quickly followed by austerity. So in the UK, actually, there was a sort of quite sizable boost to uh, building efficiency, just the right thing to do. The warm front was expanded and then austerity came and warm front was closed. So actually, one of the things to learn this time is that there was a, in a sense of boom and bust, there was this surge um, but then, uh, then because of concern, uh, as we have uh, and found, sort of wrongly about the size of the debt, actually austerity came and actually meant that we did have a hit not just to that, that sort of environmental impact or the economic impact, but obviously that then led to um, a hit on the, the jobs and workforce in, in those particular sectors. So I think that is something really to think through now: is is, is not to have that stop-start. I think you've got to patent targeted, timely and transformational, Nick. We've done it
3: today. They heard it here. They heard it here (laughs) first. Um, uh, um, You mentioned earlier that we'll focus a lot on public finance in this in this um, moment. But I think you kind of hinted that public finance can also help mobilize private finance. Just just say a little bit more about that.
2: Well, the first way is is, is actually the governments will be financing um, this recovery uh, package. But one way they'll be doing that is by issuing sovereign bonds. So the Treasury will be issuing sovereign bonds, which will be bought by pension funds or insurance firms or whatever – Buy our savings to for for people's pensions and savings and Isis and, and so on. So that is one direct uh, way. Many countries are issuing so called green sovereign bonds. This is probably the time the UK should could really think about this. Just explain, Nick, for our for
3: our listeners what that what that would a green sovereign bond. What that would mean?
2: Yeah. So the the the. the, the the Treasury, uh, if it realises it's actually going to borrow money, needs to borrow money um, from 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 the markets. It issues a bond, which is a, essentially a piece of paper, uh, which people buy uh, and provide um, uh, financing. They've been doing billions in the last uh, week or so. And then that is bought by, um, by pension funds or insurance companies, fund managers, individuals can buy them uh, as well. Now, what, is, what happens with a sort of green bond or indeed a social bond is then the proceeds of that are then ring-fenced for particular activities. Again, renewables, energy efficiency, public transport. Forgive me for asking
3: this, but what – maybe may be a question in the mind of our listeners – what difference does it make how it is branded in, in the end and whether it's a gr- – I mean – clearly what it's spent on is important but does yep. it make any difference in the actual sort of process of issuing the
2: bond well i mean two, two things i think they're going to be quite important i mean certainly um actually uh governments can get actually a, a, a better price with this i they pay low interest now obviously at the moment they're paying very very low interest rates but for example chile when it was uh, at the end of last year issued a green sovereign bond and got the best deal ever in terms of interest rates, regardless How of whether interest it's green or vanilla. So actually, you can get a You can get a, a And why price. is that, Nick? Well, partly, I think it's because actually there is a real demand now for investors. Investors realise that climate change is really serious, realise we've got to get to net zero, and therefore, they want to make sure their portfolios on behalf of their savers, ordinary pensioners and savers, are aligned with that goal. Uh, and so there's now excess demand for these types of These types of assets. So that's 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 one reason. The second, I think, and I think it's an interesting one for the stimulus is one of the things um, with the the global financial crisis is governments made lots of announcements. And I'm sure much of the money was well spent, but often it was quite hard then subsequently to find out what happened with the money. Some countries like the UK is fairly transparent, but not all countries are transparent in the same way. The good thing about a green sovereign bond is that it has a reporting mechanism. Every year there's a report on how this money is spent so people put their money in know where it's going. And so that would allow a little bit more transparency, I think, um, to, to, to the whole process uh, and would therefore make sure this money is, is, is well spent and not, um, not fritted away or indeed spent on non-green activities.
4: Nick, how how do you go about making sure that a stimulus package it might well have a lot of you know, great green initiatives in it, but what if the rest of it has a, a high carbon strategy? How how do you stop that from happening?
2: Well, one of the things, particularly here in the UK, is actually um, we're now legally committed as as a country to um, bring the economy to net zero status, zero emissions by by 2050, and we know that that has profound implications on on government decision making. There was a a court decision not so long ago about the decision to expand Heathrow, which was found not to have taken that to account. So I think in the UK, net zero is the sort of framework within which um, the recovery plan will need to be uh, considered, won't necessarily mean that, for example, currently high carbon sectors may not receive government money, but that government money will have to be, I always think, li- very clearly linked to very measurable plans to put those sectors on track for, for, for net zero. So I think this time around, clearly we we do want to allocate to some of these really um, uh, transformational green sectors, but the whole thing, the whole 100% needs to be um, Paris aligned and, uh, and uh, positive for the net zero government. And just give us
3: finally, Nick, your assessment of whether whether the lessons of two thousand and eight are likely to be learned by governments i mean i think we we were struck a week or so ago talking about the sort of response to this the immediate response to the the financial crisis this time compared to last time, and governments had learnt some lessons from two thousand and eight. Do you get the sense? with with the climate emergency in a completely different place and a more accelerated place, do you get the sense that governments around the world are going to learn those lessons and do more than that 16%?
2: Well, I, I, no, it is, it is, it is, it's the question, I suppose. My sense is certainly uh, here in Europe, I think there's a recognition that recovery plans do need to be aligned to the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement came many years after that that green financial stimulus. So we didn't have that sense of a sort of, Uh, a target zone to aim for, and the green stimulus was only 15%, 16%. Most of the stimulus last time wasn't green, yeah? Um, So I think we've seen, um, obviously, in the US, we've seen allocations towards aviation and and the high-carbon sectors like that. I think that will be harder to do um, here in Europe. Um, And clearly, I think the the goal, which I think is perfectly achievable, is that this uh, recovery plan, as it comes through, does support the the economy long term does actually accelerate our move to this net zero economy and also builds this now we real, realize a very precious thing called resilience, yeah, our ability, our ability to withstand and bounce back from shocks. Now we're we're suffering this uh, horrible uh, health crisis, but resilience in a broader sense to physical impacts of climate change, um, to to energy price shocks, food price shocks. I think that's going to be a much more valuable um, uh, strength in our financial system and our economic system more generally.
3: OK, uh, well, uh, Nick Robbins, you've been targeted, timely and transformational. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Jeff, thanks so much. So what
4: did you think? I mean, it, it sounds weird, but I did find it you know, quite positive. I know the world is going through this terrible, terrible thing at the moment. But I was surprised to hear that figure of 16% in 2008
3: well which you was think it lot- sounds more than you expected
4: yeah yeah i mean i know it's low but that was in 2008 when i think you know a lot of progressive people had grasped climate change but it hadn't been grasped as widely as it is now and it wasn't thought of as the, the, the emergency broadly in the way that it is now so I think if it was 16% in 2008 it, it's going to be a lot more in 2020 and I also thought there's something really interesting in how nimble governments have had to be in response to this which shows how quickly you can act if there's will there
3: well I think that last point is really interesting I mean, all your points are interesting, as always, but that last point is really interesting because, um, you know, I remember this conversation with Todd Stern, who used to be the US climate envoy, um, I think a year or more ago, and he was, and we were talking about how hard it was to get the world to get to one and a half degrees or to, to make commitments to one and a half degrees. He said, "Look, if a meteorite was heading for the earth and this was what was necessary to stop it, we would act. And I think what this crisis has shown is the capability of states, governments, people, but obviously states and governments have to do their bit to to act, you know, building a hospital in a week, you know, just just extraordinary extraordinary things that have rightly been done. So I think that's interesting. I thought I was really taken with Hannah's house metaphor because I think part of the issue is how do you persuade people. That you know, there's a there's an absolutely understandable instinct that we want to get back to normal. I'm sure we feel it ourselves, and so I thought it was a really interesting point that yes, if you, but if you're rebuilding your house, you don't necessarily build it rebuild it in exactly the same way. You you want to improve it, and I think that's a good kind of interesting, good way of putting it. And then also, as I, as it was probably apparent, I was really taken with Nick's tr- targeted, timely, and no longer temporary but transformational. I thought that was a really i thought it was a really smart way of of thinking about it all you need is a bit of alliteration that is true as the song goes
4: you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed miliband
1: and jeff lloyd
3: if you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's episode or ideas for future episodes please do email us you can find us through our website cheerfulpodcast.com that's what sam grinsell did Uh, And he wrote this, in these troubled times, dear Ed and Jeff, I hope this email finds you well. Uh, This phrase, in these troubled times, is one of my reasons to be cheerful, because it seems like such a human admission of where we are. Given that life can be challenging at any time, I hope this attitude is something we can take with us into the future. My second reason to be cheerful is a cafe in Edinburgh. I used to live opposite Thistle's on a home street, and although I now live elsewhere, I follow them on Facebook. As a result of the crisis, they have started selling ready meals and offering a delivery service to the local area to try to help people get nutritious food during the crisis. The owner, John Kelly, is one of the loveliest people you could hope to meet and their Facebook page is always full of messages of support and solidarity. They're a very small business, no doubt worrying for their future, especially given the cancellation of the Edinburgh Festival, but even in these times, they continue to bring a little warmth to the city. They're the kind of businesses the world will need as it comes out of this crisis and I hope we will all remember who is doing good for their communities at the time of greatest need. Thanks so much, Sam. Lovely. Oh, um, we received a tweet from Dr Sarah
4: Campbell, who we know from uh, when we went to Hebden Bridge. And she says, I saw these goats today. She attaches a photo as evidence. Uh, I saw these goats today on my dog walk. They've not come into town yet, but they might. Wow. So, so that's the latest on Goat Watch yeah, this week. Goat Watch. And, uh, and then Steve Marshall uh, says... Congratulations, Ed, on your recent return to front benches. and with regards to last week's episode, he says, I was especially interested in the 3D community item. My daughter, Layla and her husband, Gary, are printing four visors a day to help out. It took them a few days to start as they needed a particular plastic that could stand the cleaning process between uses. My wife and I are proud of their contribution and are impressed with the 3D community's efforts and their sharing of information and software. I still don't understand 3D printers. I think your question, what are you putting in to them that still got me flummoxed
1: email us reasons at
4: cheerful follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast oh we're in the outro indeed we are and and surprisingly during lockdown you're sporting a new haircut
3: yes i have my wife to thank for this so there's a guy who cuts our hair obviously who's going kind of not his business is shut down he offered to help us help her do it online.
4: So did he talk her through it as if as if she was defusing
3: a bomb in real time? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and we basically it worked reasonably well because we experimented on my children. <laughs> Sam thinks his didn't go so well because he was first, and he's probably right.
4: Is she going to allow you to cut her hair?
3: Well, I'm offering to reciprocate. I mean, I was quite enthusiastic about doing the kids, but I think Justine was a bit. I'm not sure that was going to work so but, but i'm definitely offering
4: well it sounds like you're in with a shot of doing it next time definitely we should point people towards our website uh cheerfulpodcast.com we're putting lots of stuff about the episodes up on there uh, if you need something to to read something to you know some rabbit holes to fall down uh, during lockdown you can do so by going to the website cheerfulpodcast.com and you can also sign up to our newsletter by doing so
3: Right, let's thank Michael Jacobs, Hannah Martin and Nick Robbins. Emma Caution produces
4: our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce, Pavlina Dragonova, Eli Manderson Evans and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, Ed Seed composed the music, James Deacon made the eye and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been
0: Reasons to be cheerful.